This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're talking about the work of Michael Haneke. We're talking about some of his films like Cachet, The White Ribbon, and any others that any of us may have seen. And with that, I'll let Helen start us off. Okay, so I decided to talk about Cachet, and I'll talk about Gaze a little bit. Um, because I love talking about this term, because I think it really um, shows how a uh, move towards something universalist and dialectic through psychoanalysis was um, hindered and held back in favor of market logic uh, through um, this misrecognition, mis- uh, misunderstanding of the term in film studies. Um, I love the Sturridge's work. Um, I was thinking we could do an episode on the piano teacher at some stage, but maybe some of us will have some thoughts about the piano teacher today. So I thought um, Cachet really explores the term, the idea of gaze, um, Lacanian term. Well, I'll I'll talk about Lacan's um, insight through this term now. Um, This film really interestingly deals with um, colonialism, post-colonialism, and the way in which one um, is viewed by another, but the other is also divided. So um, within this sort of market capitalist logic we often talk about, there is a a wholeness we can get back to, an undivided other who has a promise that we can gain through the um, achievement of some goal or the um, attainment of some commodity. And this is the logic on which um, capitalism operates. And as I often argue, um, if there is a wholeness that we can get back to, some greater being must have endowed us with this wholeness. So there is an undivided other or uh, an all-knowing God. And the other, often, you know, in sort of um, colonialist orientalist logic that is echoed in the quote-unquote anti-colonialist uh, logic of uh, post-colonialism, what have you, you know, these terms like cultural appropriation, the sort of liberal leftist, uh, no, I will delete the word leftist, but this liberal university discourse related to questions of, um, let's say, colonialism, are stuck in that same logic because they, um, just as the other is um, risen up to the status of all-knowing, the other can be debased in their innocence, but they are still an innocent, undivided being who hasn't gone through the division with which a speaking human subject is endowed. But here we see a gaze of the other that is also divided. We don't know who is watching the main character. We we are never given a whole answer because the other doesn't even know themselves. So the gaze for Lacan is really the void, the abyss, contradiction, lack, the point at which that we see that looking back at us. Instead, in film studies, film theories, after a very famous essay in the 70s, which misunderstands Lacan in, its entire, in his entirety in terms of the ultimate, quote unquote, point or non-point of Lacan, is a gaze of mastery. And this um, distorted the philosophy of film and the analysis of film and even the sort of ideological impetus of film as such, especially art house film that then got often elements of it weaponized towards the market. Um, the, the, the gaze is about men having dominion over women and that it's sort of just a gender war question. But this, this is misunderstanding the symptom and the cause. So psychoanalysis is a, um, let's say, practice or even the philosophy of psychoanalysis let's say, a philosophy that allow, gets us to encounter the notion that contradiction underpins everything, which can shift us away from the capitalistic logic that sustains the symptom of um, enemy-making at the level of the imaginary. So gender wars, culture wars, etc. Instead, this university discourse, so the four discourses of Lacan, the university discourse is <laughs> sort of like, in his terms, a fake discourse 
which uh, uses um, the language of mastery to really uphold ideology. Whereas the, the element, let's say, that can get us beyond this in terms of the four discourses is the analyst's discourse, which is encountering us with contradiction. There is no div undivided other. Every other, every uh, person or point at which we are viewed is also divided. There's no, there is no ultimate um, gaze of dominion. This is like Nietzsche's void looking back at us. It is the abyss looking back at us. And that abyss is in every other. There is no other to, uh, to mine for uh, access to wholeness and completeness. There's no other country where El Dorado exists. And it's in that insight that then we can get outside of utopian logic, which drives us to cast as enemy the other who sustains the whole show that keeps the merry-go-round of horror continuing on. All right. Yes. I'll say I have a few other thoughts, but I'll save them for later. All right. Nina, you're up. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I recently rewatched um both Cache and the White Ribbon. Um I'll start with some comments on Cache. Um I hadn't seen this film since it came out. It was quite a big deal. It was well received when it came out. Um, I mean, it, there's several ways of, of thinking about it. The most obvious one, in a sense, is to do with perhaps France's relationship to Algeria and particularly the the drowning of Arabs, uh, the FN, FN, FLN supporters uh, in the early 60s in the Seine, um, which obviously a kind of act of grotesque horror um, that was kind of buried from thought, if you like, hidden from the kind of discourse within uh, France until quite late on. Um, and all of the kind of information about it was sort of hidden from, until the 90s. Um, and of course, it's one of those questions of a certain kind of stain on the conscience of uh, colonial nations like France, not only the treatment of uh, the colon colonized abroad, but also the colonized within France and um, cachets also to do with the, the hiddenness of, um, of those people from former colonies or you know, places that were becoming colonies, um, in, also in relation to a certain kind of intellectual um, discourse and, and and in a way, uh, let's say the Guardian way of reading this film would be to say, um, oh well, the, the the lives of the intellectuals depends upon the occlusion of those from that uh, that world, but also it depends on the exploitation of those people um, who are not part of that world. And in a sense, the whole of contemporary intellectual and cultural life in rich Western nations is predicated on ignoring or hiding the fact of previous eras of exploitation and colonialism. And I think um, Hanukkah's film does flirt with a certain kind of didacticism um, in this, in this film in particular. Um, although I think what's most interesting about it or more interesting about it is what is left open and what is left um, to the viewer. And of course, another simple way of understanding the hiddenness of the viewer in the cinematic experience is to say, well, the viewer, if you like, is complicit in the scene, right? So the viewer is obviously complicit in watching not only Michael Haneke's film, but also the videos that feature in the film. And, and during this period in the films of David Lynch and others, you also have a kind of commentary on various forms of video technology that become incorporated in the cinematic presentation. And there is something genuinely quite Brechtian about watching let's say a pre-recorded video that you don't yet know is a video and it's suddenly breaking and reversing um, and you realize that you're actually watching what characters in the film are watching um, and all of these sort of techniques. And, and so one of the interesting things in cache that is, is never resolved and in fact is left open is uh, where the tapes are coming from. So what, why we see what we see, who is recording and from what angle. Um, and everybody in a sense, uh, uh, the Algerian, uh, the, the father and the son deny that they are um, recording uh, footage and that th they're sending these kind of alarming videos. Um, but there's also a sense in which that there is obviously a hidden camera in the flat and it's not clear who is in control of the hidden camera, right? That we have an angle onto something. It's it's our gaze. It's also Hanukkah's gaze. It's also like the gaze from nowhere, um, as well as possibly 
uh, one of the characters filming, although it's never clear who actually is responsible um, for the videos. And, and so there's a kind of openness there um, and a kind of uncertainty, um, which I think raises a bigger question about how we see what we see, where we're coming from. You know, so often when we see a photograph, we don't always think about who's taking the picture, which seems like a very obvious thing to say. But we often have the impression that we're looking at something directly as if there's something good and natural and real and true about an image, um, as if that's just uh, it was the, na the natural, correct thing to do for this image to have been captured, as opposed to something um, that, that's always staged and that's always taken by a third party. Um, and of course, the, it's the third party that's secluded. So not only are we obscured in relation to our own, let's say, political complicity on the one hand, but also our kind of um, complicity as a viewer in the act of cinema itself. Um, but the the camera itself is is kind of is is always hidden. And I think sort of cachet is also about the camera, you know, just as much as it's about um, colonialism. And the final scene is is a very uh, another ambiguous and open scene where where if you're observant, you can see in the bottom left-hand corner, um, the son of the Algerian uh, family speaking to the son of the, um, the, the, the white intellectual French family, um, but it's very hidden and you can't hear what they're saying. Um, and you, you, you suspect that the, the, the Algerian son has been speaking to the other son beforehand, but you don't know um, because the son has started acting up. And, and again, everything is left unresolved and, and all of the kind of fears and tension. And particularly, I think, where you place innocence, you know, the, 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 the French boy who got the Algerian boy sent away was himself six years old. And, and again, this is a kind of question about can you really therefore blame someone? You know, the same question would go for the entire French population who weren't born, let's say, at the time of uh, the killing of Arabs in the in, in the, the early 60s. You know, to what extent do do French people or do British people or do Americans or whoever anyone have complicity or have you know responsibility for the acts of the past um for which they they had they bore no um you know practical responsibility and i think obviously this is a massive ongoing question um you know that we see flaring up constantly um in various discussions around race in america or colonialism or post-colonialism uh in many many countries um questions of reparations and so on and i but I think, again, the interesting thing, just to finish on this, also it comes up in the White Ribbon, the, the question of innocence and blame. Um, the White Ribbon, again, is similarly ambiguous, set just before um, the beginning of uh, World War I uh, in a small community where various sort of slightly evil things start to happen and people are hurt and, and people are being actually quite seriously damaged. Um, and it's not clear who is responsible. And there's a kind of general malevolence and um, a kind of increasing suspicion. Um, various children start to seem incredibly creepy. Um, uh, again, their sort of innocence and their Christian innocence is being kind of uh, tested uh, also in the film. And one of the sort of lessons perhaps you can draw from this um, is that there is a sort of malevolence at the heart of man that can't be eradicated either through um, religion or the abandonment of history or, or anything else. And that there's something perhaps mysterious um, about this, um, about this evil um, that we can only see uh, in a kind of askew or in a, in a way that is kind of askance and that we ourselves are also complicit in the moment we've, we reflect upon what it is to see evil in any case. All right, now it's my turn. So we recently discussed Pig, a film that positions itself as if it were a revenge film and then sets about subverting many of the tropes of that genre. Now we discuss Michael Haneke, who has done something similar with the whodunit. In both Cachet and the White Ribbon, strange, unsettling things happen, and the characters want to figure out who is responsible. In Cachet, Georges is inclined to blame a person from his past whom he previously wronged. In The White Ribbon, the villagers become suspicious of one another. Neither film resolves the mystery. In both cases, the cause of the unsettling events remains opaque. In both cases, film critics were quick to look for political messages. 
With Cachet, they like to argue that the film is a commentary on France's colonial past. The French harm their colonial subjects, and now they fear that the descendants of those subjects will do them harm. They like to read the white ribbon as a commentary on the rise of fascism. The villagers want security. They will pay any price to get it. They're the sort of people who might go in for a totalitarian police state. It's set in Germany in the 30s, and that makes it easy for critics to think that's what it means. Annika himself has made remarks which don't jive with these interpretations. Of Cachet, he says, this film was made in France, but I could have shot it with very few adjustments within an Austrian or I'm sure an American context. The film doesn't seem to have been made with the specific purpose of commenting on French history or the history of European empires in Africa. Instead, Hanukkah him seems, himself seems to be interested in abstract ideas, in guilt and suspicion and the harm caused by both. In Cachet, guilt leads to suspicion. The guilty party is inclined to think the harmed party will seek revenge. Guilt and revenge do seem connected. Both involve blame. To feel guilty, one has to blame oneself for wrongdoing. To seek revenge, one must first blame someone else for the wrong done. Even suspicion itself involves speculatively placing blame. Hanukkah seems to want to undermine the validity of blame altogether. The unsettling events in both films are never resolved. And Hanukkah has explicitly said that those who still want to solve the mysteries have misunderstood his work. To undermine blame is to undermine all of the forms it takes, is to undermine guilt, suspicion, and revenge. If we cannot identify some specific person or group to blame, we cannot use these ideas to make sense of unsettling events. We must either accept that they do not make sense, or we must make sense of them in an impersonal, structural way. Even impersonal structural explanations can feel rather pat from time to time. An unsolved crime might be caused by feelings of alienation or resentment generated by capitalism, but it just as easily might be caused by genetic psychopathy. When we are trying to make sense of individual events, we cannot know if the specific events follow the rule or constitute an outlier. Structural factors explain many criminal acts in an aggregate sense, but we cannot be sure whether they explain any given specific criminal act. This means that when we are trying to make sense of an individual act in isolation, we cannot find a satisfying explanation. We cannot be sure any given individual or group is to blame, nor can we be sure that any specific structural cause motivated or drove the act. Very often, we are forced to accept that we do not understand the act and that we will never understand it. We don't get closure in the sense that we don't get a satisfying resolution. All we can do is accept the fact that we won't get closure, that the act will remain mysterious. By remaining mysterious, the act is a metaphor for the whole universe. We cannot fully unravel truth. We must simply accept that the universe does not make sense to us. This is a hard thing to do. It's much easier to reach for some individual or group to blame. It's also easier to universalize a structural explanation to say that all crime is due to some set of social or genetic conditions or some combination thereof. These are ways of seeking psychological comfort, of seeking an end to the unsettling feelings these criminal acts provoke in people. But they do not really solve the mystery of it. They paper over that mystery. I have always had a hard time getting myself interested in stories about crime. Invariably, people are trying to figure out who or what caused the unsettling act. They're looking for some pat explanation to make them feel better. They also love to universalize any explanation that looks attractive in the individual case. The Kyle Rittenhouse trial became an ordeal in the United States because each side of the culture war wanted to use it to advance a bunch of sweeping and rather uninteresting claims about American culture. If they could explain the unsettling events involving Rittenhouse in a way that satisfied their structural narratives about American culture, that would make them feel at home in the world. If the court rules in a manner consistent with their narrative, the court affirms their worldview. If the court rules in an inconsistent manner, the court and the law become part of the problem and they adopt a more hostile stance to the criminal justice system as a whole. The United States constantly adopts criminal trials as metaphors for the entire cultural production system of the country. I find it all very repetitive and tiresome. Nobody ever changes their mind in response to any of this shit. Yeah. Perhaps that's why I don't find these films pleasant to watch. I recognize that Hanukkah is using the whodunit tropes to point out the futility of blame, but I am so bored by those same tropes that I have a hard time getting engaged. I once told one of my friends that I don't care about crimes. It's become something of an inside joke over the years. 
I think Hanukkah is inviting us to stop caring about crimes. And I think he's doing it through the vehicle of the mystery thriller. I like what he's doing intellectually. But when it comes to the plot films, well, I don't really care. But perhaps that's the point. Yeah, I mean, it's right. There is lots of similarities with Pig, the sort of leading you by desire, following the sort of genre form to completely undercut it. Do you know, the thing is, it's funny because, Anini, you, you were kind of talking about this as well. I think it's race, what you were saying, Edwin, about the thing with gays, to go back to gays, is that um, there's something to do with sight that we believe ideologically, or we just sort of have more of a feeling that it's true, even though it's actually not that if we see something with our own eyes, then it is more real than it is, say, for instance, if we, you know, we talk about the question of taste, taste being the sense of eating, um, the sense of getting flavour. And taste has the sort of discernment side to it, the sort of subjective, you know, my taste, your taste. So, you know, we when we eat broccoli and we don't like it, you know, there's sort of this, this question of ambivalence in, in that sense. But with sight, it, it, we don't have that, you know, when actually, realistically, we do, you know, that there is this sort of... and. So I think that, um, yeah, using, as you were saying, uh, Nina, the, the, the question of the impersonal camera or who is this, you know, positioning the, the image so that we do start to have this question of what is behind it. Not in this sort of, you know, silly studies, um, non-philosophy version of, you know, the, you know, they, they, sort of, they managed to kind of like turn everything that was originally in a philosophical sense, as you, Benjamin, say, pointing out the complexity, ambivalence and mystery of life into an absolutism. So, oh, the person holding the camera is a man and therefore all men, blah, 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 which is this cathartic bullshit. Whereas the question of, you know, the philosophical insight is to lead us to, um, Todd McGowan talks about this, this, this point of um, conversion. He calls it this, this um, sort of like almost this, religious conversion experience that we are always invited to constantly have as we change, you know, our position. <laughs> Something uh, erupts from the world, we encounter it and we're like, oh, this changes everything to a certain extent. Um, but instead we use any, you know, capitalism will take any insight that leads us to this and locks it down into the catharsis of maintaining one's own position and absolutism. All men are like this, all male directors are like this, all female directors are like this, for instance. Um, yeah, and obviously the Rittenhouse thing was an example of this. Even, yeah, and I don't know, there were some people who, for instance, you know, were shown evidence or whatever and did change their position. I think it was uh, within the media space, there were a few people like that, but yeah, there is a sort of a two-sidedness to everything. Yeah, I wonder, you know, the Rittenhouse thing, one of the aspects I think you see this in quite a few cases now is not only, well, I mean, the problem of separating like the media or or social response from the trial itself, right? So, I mean, we still technically do still have things like the rule of law and like, you know, innocent until proven guilty and so on. But but it's very hard to remember those those things, I think. And, and you know, and, and even things like the separation of the act and the the person killed, for example. I mean, so so you saw people saying, "Oh, but he killed, you know, a bad person." And it's like, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter who, you know, as as if somehow like the you know the that because he sort of happened to harm or you know murder someone who had done bad things, therefore it was somehow retroactively okay. And it's like, no, no, no. I mean, this is you know. That how to separate out the the acts from the the consequences like that seems to be getting forgotten often you know it's like oh well it all worked out in the end it's like that's that's really not the point like <laughs> um yeah and I, I think some of the, even some of the arguments in the legal cases about how um if you're there for bad reasons then this might affect your def self-defense you know, whereas again, it's, it's, you know, having spent quite a lot of time in court and it, and it becomes very frustrating when you, when you are there, because the focus always has to be exactly on what happened in a particular situation, you know, so it's all, always extremely precise. It's like, if there was an act or an action, what was going on in this thing? And of course, context matters, but it, it, it actually in a way doesn't, because usually what you're being charged with is some event or some action, you know, um, it's not, I mean, of course, intention matters for, for criminal offenses, but it's, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to d d untangle all of these other things when we're talking about, you know, and, and, and the idea that people could presuppose they knew what the jury had seen. It's like, if you're on the jury, you get to see loads of things. 
that mm-hmm. loads of other people don't see, right? That that actually affect your your judgment as if you know you on the outside could somehow you know be in a position to say what the jury should have decided. Um, it's all very it's all very strange. But then, yeah. But that's the, I mean, it's like the legal system is not very cathartic. <laughs> you know, right. Obviously, people want justice. And obviously, you know, there's a sense of uh, reparation, quote unquote, with, with justice. But I mean, obviously, that doesn't always function well, because it's as with every institution, it's people. I th- but I think the legal system isn't even about justice. That's a, that's a mistake people make. Mm-hmm. There, there is actually, it's, it's actually not about that. Like. There is no justice to be found in the legal system, actually. Not in the sense that we mean it in a, I don't know, deep yeah, one way. One of the, the fun debates with the legal system is that, you know, the Kelsen-Schmidt debate. I don't know. I don't know if you guys know Kelsen or I, I, you probably know Schmidt, right? Mm. Uh, Carl Schmidt. So Carl Schmidt you know, argues that politics precedes the legal system and Kelsen famously argues the reverse. And a lot of lawyers, you know, the kind of Kool-Aid ideology of being a lawyer is this idea that the legal system is the foundation of the society, and therefore everything is answerable to the legal system and to legal definitions. But of course, in practice, the legal system is instituted for political reasons because it helps the state to secure order. And insofar as legal definitions, legal terms, uh, legal procedure gets in the way of the maintenance of order, Order wins, politics wins, and the law gets pushed to one side. And people who really believe this stuff, really buy into the idea of the law, seem to have a very difficult time in these moments where their idea of the law and their idea of politics have come mm-hmm. out of alignment. You know, I think about there's a YouTuber called Legal Eagle who makes these videos about whether different depictions in popular culture of legal procedure are uh, realistic or not, how factually accurate are they? And a lot of them are just kind of funny pop culture videos where he looks at, you know, an episode of South Park where they have a court scene and talks about which aspects are realistic and which aspects aren't. But during the Trump administration, he got very interested in the impeachment and he started uh, fixating on how Trump should legally be impeached, how he's done all of these illegal things and, you know, legally, this should happen. Uh, He even, I think, filed some legal freedom of information cases or something. He tried to himself get personally involved in trying to cause damage to the Trump administration. It became a whole thing on his channel. And the thing that that struck me about the whole whole thing is that when when those legal cases failed, uh, the the person who is attached to the law then pivots and says that the, the thing that happened violates norms. And saying it violates norms is a way of of saying it's politically upsetting to me. Mm. Politically, I don't like it. But that use of the word norms is a kind of code for this should be law, but it's not law. So I'm going to call it norms. Uh, This person should have broken a law, but they're not ruled by the existing legal system to have broken the law. I'm committed to the legal system. So I have to affirm that the legal system works appropriately. But then I fill in all of the gaps that that legal system doesn't cover with this language of norms. And then if anyone breaks any of those norms, I treat them as if they were a criminal. And of mm. course, the norms are vague and fungible and they're whatever I and my friends think they are. So a lot of these appeals to democratic norms that people talk about are ways of trying to fill in the areas of politics that are not accounted for by law or by the Constitution in ways which satisfy their personal politics. And it's funny because, you know, if you're talking about people who are acting outside constitutional legal procedures, uh, people who are trying to use norms to make things happen are, of course, people who are making references to abstractions that are outside of the formal rules of the procedure. So they're accusing people of doing what they themselves are doing. It's all very funny. Uh, Anton Yeager talks about this. How nobody violates uh, democratic norms like the people who talk about democratic norms. <laughs> But the the reason I I got onto this thought is just looking at at these trials and how everybody, if they win, they go, oh, yes, the legal system. I love the legal system. Isn't the legal system great? And then as soon as they don't win, it's, oh, my God, the legal system is is corrupt and horrible. And it's got all of these violations of of what should be proper norms, these informal rules that are just the rules that I have. And I have them largely because 
Uh, I feel the legal system needs them because they don't rule the way I think it should. And so you just get this enormous amount of bullshitting whenever legal cases come up. When it comes to Rittenhouse, all I can really say about it is, is just the way in which people talk about it. And this is true with all these court cases, you know, all of the people who have been killed or have been shot or killed by police or whatever, all these trials, I can't remember, you know, Trayvon Martin, I think that was one of them. Uh, I can't remember the names. I can't remember the people. I don't know the events. I can't follow them. I can't follow what happens. I can't get myself to care about the details of these cases or remember them or remember who did what or who is good or, or who's a nice person. I don't know anything about the people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot. All I really know, uh, and I don't know anything about Kyle Rittenhouse. I can't retain any of it. I, I can't read it. I can't open stories about it. It bores me. And when, I, when people talk to me about it, it goes in one ear and out the other. All I can remember is that these people all went to a protest and they all you know, it got into some kind of conflict and some people died. I don't even know how many. I, can't, I couldn't tell you, right? I follow politics like a hawk. This has been on my Twitter feed for mm. a month because I'm in the United States and I have Americans on my Twitter feed. And it's all that anybody posts about for a fucking month. Everything else that's important gets ignored. And I couldn't tell you anything about it because I can't remember any of this crap. All I can say is that, you know, the moment that it shows up on your feed, how it's going to end, because it ends the same way every time. And I'm so bored of it. And I just, so many smart, educated people get themselves interested in this, and I don't understand how. Mm. <laughs> I wonder if you'd like the novels of Patricia Highsmith, actually, seeing as you, <laughs> you are not interested in whodunits. But, but because she, she makes them, in a way, she makes the opacity and the boringness of whodunits, in a way, the, the sort of point of them. And, and they're kind of like very existentialist. They're like, you don't really know, like the characters themselves don't know why they're doing the things they're doing, if you see what I mean. Like so, so there's a kind of meta level of the of the why the why the who done it. It's like uh, you know, and they they just kind of do random things sometimes, and as as people do, um, and it's kind of incorporated into the genre. And I think she it makes her like a master of the genre in a way, like because she kind of um, fiddles with it in this very clever uh, psychological way. And it's and I, I'm fascinated by her anyway. She's this kind of you know very grumpy sort of misogynistic alcoholic lesbian who her, her sort of private life is kind of like generally a mess but her plot her books are incredibly tight you know like they're even though they're about these ambiguous things they're they're just like you know really like taught and you 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 I always find this tension between writers lives and their work really interesting like you know what does it mean to be this kind of you know, miserable, grumpy, angry, alcoholic who's all over the place, but who can nevertheless write these sort of like acute things. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know the the whole kind of the facts thing. They're like, I mean, I studied law for five years and in in the evenings at Birkbeck, and I have an LLB. I have a black letter, Do you? which is hilarious. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> um, because, well, partly because, you know, when I was going out with Alfie and, you know, we're still very, very close and he he was on trial for so many years and I realised I didn't understand anything about the law and it was freaking me out. And I, my my way of dealing with something is to try and understand everything about it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I was like, OK, I need to do a law degree so I can understand what's happening to Alfie. So um, but yeah, I mean, actually, the I really enjoyed doing contract law of all things. And no way. it's really about the origins of capitalism in, in all these kinds of ways. And it's mm -hmm. about how to kind of reify a promise um and you find out all these very very interesting things when you study law i was uh, really pleasantly surprised um and i won the dissertation prize but i think that was a bit unfair since i already had a phd that's hilarious <laughs> yeah but it, it is it is very interesting when you when you look at kind of criminal law and, and this whole um idea of the mens rea and the kind of intention you know and 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 actually how complicated um that is um and you know and how that kind of calls into question i mean in a way when you look at like john locke and his when he starts talking about uh personal identity as we would now call it but he starts talking about um consciousness you know and and this sort of replaces the soul when we talk about identity over time and and his example is a legal one where he's like you know somebody does something and they were they were too drunk to remember what they've done but we still have to prosecute them for the act, if you see what I mean. So it's still the same person, even though the person doesn't remember what it is they've done. 
Um, so we need to kind of come up with a concept that, you know, that, that suggests identity over time, if you saw what I mean, because actually without that, then you have the kind of the fragment problem, you know, the fact that basically we're all, uh, it's actually surprisingly difficult to prove identity over time or to have identity over time. It's like, even in your, when you think about yourself, okay, it's like, I've got a name, you know, I, you can think about yourself when you're four, right? But am I the same person I was when I was four? Well, in many ways, no, right? <laughs> like I have more in common with, you know, someone my own age now than I do with myself when I'm four, right? So what does that tell me about continuity? Um, Anyway, but the, the law tries to solve all these problems basically um, in a very, a very clever, clever way. Uh, yeah, that is very... amazing how they, yeah, because the contract thing is really, really interesting how just this one form of agreement, mm. you know, as, as soon as it's signed down, you know, it's like, but of course, when it comes down to it, the party that is less powerful, do they ever really, you know, does it really make any set, I was thinking about a contract situation I'm in right now, and it's like, does it really work? I don't know. But yeah, how, how it's trying to manage this contradiction. Well, I mean, I think, you know, ideally, the ideal contract, the, everything would be resolved at the negotiation stage, right? So that all mm. protections will be built in, you know, so that the you can't sort of be compelled to sign a contract, right, would be the point, right? So if somebody forced you to sign a contract, it wouldn't be binding. But so so there's an equality in the sense that both parties, if it's between two, you know, have the right to negotiate. So you, do, you don't agree to something that you wouldn't agree to, basically. So it's an obvious point. But um, I mean, the problem is once you signed a contract and it wasn't to your advantage, you can't do anything about it. <laughs> but basically, but as well, then, because over time, let's say a contract runs out, but there are other ways in which, because you can't, you can definitely be compelled, you know. But, well, this would be a Marxist argument, yeah, you know, I mean, exactly. how, you know, if you have to sell your labor power in order to survive, right, you're not really, you know, in the same position as someone who owns the means of production, right? I mean, you're exactly. not, you know, you are, in fact, <laughs> compelled, even <laughs> though it's, it looks like a free exchange, right? You're exchanging your labor in return for a wage, right? So Absolutely. there's obviously that kind of criticism. I think the contract becomes really interesting, I think, when it becomes a question of, like, for example, marriage. So, the marriage is obviously between two parties, let's say, although now probably 10 if you want, because, you know, polygamy is great again. Um, but no, let's say between two people. But it's also a relation of those two people, not only to each other, but also to the contract. So the contract mm -hmm. becomes a third. Right. And it's and it's incredibly interesting what that actually does psychically to people, because not only are you bound to each other, you're also bound to the contract. And in a way, there's something kind of very psychoanalytically intriguing about the. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. so even if things are going wrong with your wife or husband, right, you still have another relation to the contract. Exactly. And well, this, know, this is the, the one side let's just talk like in a Marxist term about marriage, because obviously the precarity of our age, we are, you know, for instance, we were talking about the homelessness problem in LA, and there is the argument that this is. Uh, for it's a designed in factor just as a reminder of what could happen to you if you didn't abide by all of the you know compulsions that you are um pushed towards in order to survive but there is a sort of thing of um this free floatingness is very anxiety producing and obviously we can't escape the material conditions and so you know in this sort of you know, <laughs> uh, i'm in los angeles at the moment there's all this sort of idealist um, you know, in, in some ways, interesting ways of managing relationships and ways to explore different relationships. But you can't, you know, extricate you from the material conditions. And so this free-floating permanent anxiety of always being open to something new and shifting relationships and this, that, and the other. There is a, you know, there is a point when locking something down is very helpful psychically in some ways to some people at some times, especially given, you know, capitalism but then there are all sorts of reasons why from another perspective one wouldn't want to lock things down but yes ah, capital likes to make the pitch that you should constantly be adapting and you know open mm -hmm. to creative destruction and so on and the idea of locking yourself down into anything is runs rather against that and so i think in places where liberal ideology or capitalism is more dominant and more entrenched there tend to be issues with marriage even just purely on that basis that 
it is a permanence and capitalism doesn't mm-hmm. like permanence. It wants you to be I agree. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's like, you know, subversive to stay married now, like, mm-hmm. you know, to marry someone and stay with them for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Like my parents did. It's because that requires a contentment. It requires that you not be constantly grasping for something better mm-hmm. in some yeah. way, shape, or form. Uh, you have exactly. to go. This is this is as good as it's going to be. And you know, if anything, we're just going to get older and and less capable and less good looking. So, <laughs> but this is this is the but hilarious thing. It. You know that the um this the this weird. I'm just I'm going to use the word studies from now on. The studies compulsion to align capitalism with this sort of mind of state and institutions as a one-to-one relationship is just not true you know because states are territorial you know just the fact that the state is territorial is that's a fixed thing Uh, that doesn't fit very neatly with capital which is global and cross borders and about flows and motion Exactly. Maybe it's a a great ideological reassurance at the time that this notion developed, you know, patriarchy, et cetera, to to make people feel that there was some permanence within capitalism. But no, capitalism, you know, runs completely antithetically, it's completely antithetical to to anything being locked down. Well, I say that as in the term lockdown has meant something else this year, but like some kind of... um, You know, as in some some kind of voluntary permanence, some kind of non-desire to, some kind of satisfaction. You yeah, know, okay. Okay. Right. So this point that um, Benjamin made about closure and the kind of inability of closure, because I was actually talking to a psycho psychoanalysis friend earlier, um, and we were talking about this in you know, and I was bringing up this this the Judaic idea of the Day of Atonement, where you you know walk around and you say, "I'm sorry, I upset you over this," mm-hmm. and they say, "I'm sorry, I upset you over that," and you know, and it's a genuine attempt to create, as far as I understand it, you know, like a a possibility for social harmony on the basis of a recognition of harm and an acceptance of 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 a, you know a, a redemption and, and whatever you know you make it you make up you make it up on the basis of a higher notion of the social good, right? And I was saying how awful it is that there are so many situations now, maybe especially more so because of technology and so on, where people basically just stop being friends with someone, don't even necessarily really say why, you know, this idea of Mm -hmm. ghosting, whether you're in a, you know, romantic relationship or a non-romantic relationship, but, or where people split up or they, they fall out over political disagreements, you know, you voted for Brexit, I'm a Remainer, therefore I can't speak to you ever again, even though we went to each other's weddings and, you know, you were the godparent of my child or whatever. Um, you know, like this happens all the time. And and how kind of awful it is that some in those situations where you don't even know, I mean, maybe this is always, maybe social life is always like this. It's always completely open-ended, right? But where there are situations where, let's say someone won't respond to you or hasn't responded to you. So you don't even know mm-hmm. whether they're sort of upset with you or not. And there's never any closure. You don't have a sit down, have a conversation and said, well, actually, I, I think you were a dick and you did this and you said that and I can't be friends with you anymore. And, and at least yeah. then you could go, yeah. great, at least all that's right, a fine. Few. <laughs> at least there's a break and you know yes. what caused it. And if you at any point wanted to try to solve it or, or yeah. paper or move past it, you could. But yeah, the thing that I think is really distinctive of our present period is just how often you have situations where a relationship ends and you don't know why it ended. Mm. And trying to figure out why will just cause more trouble. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's no possibility of figuring out it out. You just have to accept that you don't understand it, can't understand it, and will never have a satisfying explanation. I have a lot of relationships, friendships that end ultimately in a situation that nobody really fully understands. Mm. And you can posit theories about exactly how it happened or why it happened. But at the end of the day, you can't really understand it. And those theories that you're throwing out there are security blankets when people ask you, hey, what happened with that? Or why did that go the way it went? You, you might give them a theory because it might you know, give them something. But you're not really you don't really know that that's true. You don't really know why mm-hmm. it went the way it went. And you're never going to know. And you have to just accept that. You know, similar thing with death. Death is something that I think really does not make sense to a lot of people. Uh, it's very unfair and, and cruel and flippant uh, who dies and who doesn't die. And you just have to accept that it won't make sense to you. It will never totally make sense. And that 
it's okay that it doesn't make sense. That's the hardest part, the it's okay Absolutely. that it doesn't make sense. That's acceptance. Real acceptance is not, I understand it, I have closure. It's, I will never have closure and that's okay. I can still move forward without grasping after this thing from the past. You know, it's interesting to me. So, you know, the polyvalence of repression, right? Because I think repression actually is more a question of a, a desire to repress this confrontation that we will inevitably have with the mystery, the unanswerable but also there is a dimension of because uh, sex is the unanswerable that <laughs> there's a, a repression related to sex but sex isn't the essence repression that will solve that you know that un unrepressing sexual repression will do anything because again like there's a there's a polyvalence to it in that like both we we desire what we can't have so we 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 desire is generated by the not having so, you know, the, 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 in a way, the, the closure generates desire for, for something. And so when we have this like permanent access to a thing that we're not getting, that's where things get completely messy because we either get melancholic when we have it all or we get completely depressed when we don't have it. And actually this sort of this openness towards it without any kind of like ways of organizing our desire creates a horrible situation of desire and sort of an existential um quagmire for a lot of people because there isn't just a solution in having an openness to something but interestingly so um the piano teacher deals with this question quite interestingly um so it's about a, a, a piano teacher who's at this very elite uh uh conservatoire in is it in switzerland i think or southern france somewhere but anyway but she's she's in a very repressive situation living with her mother very religious very kind of like um, old school French upper middle class Catholic, uh, but she has a, an immense um, sex drive <laughs> and she's into all kinds of perverse um, sexual acts and what have you. And she um, has a very handsome young uh, uh, student who uh, becomes engaged with her and she's very, very repressive and mean. And this seems to uh, sort of set off a very kind of like sadomasochistic relationship. Um, at, at a certain point, um, she's she's asked, I think, to confess all of her sort of like darkest sexual proclivities and what she really, really wants. And he'll kind of give it to her and there'll be some kind of sexual ecstasy. But what actually happens is she, she confesses all of these very, very dark sexual um, desires and immediately the whole thing implodes <laughs> when it's right there on the surface, because the way sex works, you know, there's a sort of there's a yes and no, there's a give and take, there's a, there's an openness and a necessary repression. And when everything just like the, the act of rape, when everything is just foisted out there in a way that the two parties are not engaged in this sort of very, very um, complex way at the level of fantasy, it becomes completely horrific and traumatic. Anyway, so he he ditches her and she experiences the horror of her own unrepressed out there sexual fantasies that are that are laughed at, essentially, that are sort of cast away. Because often, you know, when I mean, it's funny because often sexual fantasies for ourselves are very meaningful based on early experiences. But to the other, they're either meaningless or ridiculous. And it can be very traumatic to have that sort of fantasy be debased in the openness in the face of everybody else's um, disinterest in it. And she ends up having to stab herself to death because <laughs> she can't bear it. So the point being is that when it comes to sex, which is a confrontation at a certain level with the void, it's a way of managing lack as such in order to solidify the subject, you know, we, we develop our sexual fantasies early in life. But a confrontation with it, when it's, there isn't a level of kind of management repression or, you know, it, we, we don't repress at all times, but a kind of like a managed relationship to it in relation to the other that we are sort of uh, libidinally invested in on a fantasy level. It's horrific. <laughs> you know, it's totally horrific. There's no answer to desire. You know, there's no there's no endpoint to desire. There's no satisfaction in desire. There's there's no there's no closure. But there's ways of managing that because there is no because it is a pure confrontation with the the void. But it's so traumatic. Yes. Yeah, we, think, we need narratives yeah. as people to make things feel meaningful. We need narratives. Those narratives can never fully encapsulate truth. 
but we have to be in them anyway, because if we're not, then everything feels very empty all of a sudden. And the thing about the narrative is the fact that it's not the whole truth does not diminish the need for it. And this is how I am always thinking about legitimation stories in politics, you know, different narratives about what, what states are and why you should accept some given political order. Well, none of those stories are really true, but if you don't believe in any of those stories, then everything goes to hell in a handbasket. So you have to kind of liminally adopt. You know, my brother, he, uh, he works in the defense industry and he says that uh, everybody has to drink some of the Kool-Aid, just provided that they know they're drinking it and they watch how much they drink. Yeah, it's true. As soon as you see through something too much, you just you you can't you can't do it. But the thing that's really sad is that often there are there are things that we enjoy just because I don't know part of our personality or our taste or whatever, and then that activity is tied up eventually with some kind of um, system, which obviously because of the material conditions we live in is tied to capitalism. <laughs> so at a certain point, it is you know tainted. And if we um, are too overexposed to the ideology of the taint, it can destroy the activity. So sometimes the activity we have to protect for ourselves by not overinvesting in the system to the point where we will, through an overinvestment, we will come to the other, other side of that overinvestment and be exposed to it. So for instance, I don't know, acad academia and joining the university, perhaps the way to protect yeah. philosophy and thought is to do it outside of the university, I don't know. No, definitely. But I mean, there's an interesting survey the other day about what people in different countries value. Mm -hmm. I know, and and the, the oh, sorry, the funny thing about the British um, response was um, the after, you know, the usual things like family and friends, mm -hmm. it was um, hobbies. And really? no, you mentioned this. And that's and, so sweet. And I think, but I, it's it's a very it's a very important thing. JS Mill talks about hobbies, but hobbies is a very actually very interesting category, and it's it's a very it is sweet. It's sort of whimsical. It's like we associate with I don't know having a little garden or I don't know knitting or or playing cricket or something, you know, or like building train sets or. Um, but actually, I do think there's something genuinely subversive in the hobby in relation to what you're saying, which is to say, you know, something that. You know, of course, you know, can be is 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 prey to all of these sorts of imperatives, um, but at the same time, is outside is explicitly not something that you do to make money or to to. It's not a job. It's not you know tied to the system directly. It's something that you do that you enjoy in a small way, precisely because it is a small thing. You know that, and that the sort of empirical creative smallness of it is what is beautiful about it you know and and i think there's something very interesting that british people somehow more than other countries recognized that this was like an imperative in in the structuring of their own desire was you know was the hobby <laughs> yeah there's there's intrinsic meaning to a lot of these activities they don't have to be instrumentalized the trouble is if you try to describe what's meaningful about a hobby and you to explain why it's meaningful no explanation is really satisfying, right? And so if you're unable to fully explain it to the point where it's satisfying, some people respond to that by going, well, I guess it must be meaningless because I can't fully explain it or because I can't construct a narrative of it that is fully satisfying. But of course, it is intrinsically meaningful. That, that meaning is there. It's just that language fails to describe that meaning in an all-encompassing way. There is a truth in little hobbies, but that is not a truth that is easy to share, especially with people who don't share that hobby, who access truth through some other hobby, and maybe are learning the same lessons through a different method. And so when we try to explain our hobbies to other people, nothing we say ever suffices. And we should never think that that means that the hobby is completely bunk. At the same time, I think that there's a danger in hobbies when they turn into fandoms, if they become not just you know, something that sits alongside family and friends, but the basis for all of mm -hmm. our friendships and for our sense of community. And then we drink the Kool-Aid of hobbies too deep and uh, and we end up. 
defining ourselves in making friend enemy distinctions based on who yeah. shares our hobbies and who doesn't. The cool lady of hobbies said no one ever. <laughs> There's a, a, friend, a friend of ours who is a writer but also has another job. And he um, he was very strongly sort of saying, you know, no, no, you can't turn your writing into a job. If you do, it just ruins the writing and you can never do your best work. And blah, blah, blah. But the trouble is he never has any time to write. And uh, so there is this sort of, you know, we have to manage this ambivalence of like, right, you, you commit yourself to something. And uh, I guess we're lucky that we do things that we want to do. I mean, obviously this, this also um, takes some kind of stomaching of, um, the downside of capitalism quite badly. <laughs> but, but, but at the same time, you, you, know, you, you have to sort of do it knowing or, or protecting yourself in some way from the ruination of uh, the ideology related to the marketization of that thing. Um, well, there's a chunk of people who can do this. It's people who come from sufficiently affluent families yes. yeah. that they can write as their principal main thing and if it doesn't make money, they won't be homeless. So it's OK. So they can approach their writing going, it would be nice if everybody liked this and it made money. But if it doesn't, that's OK. But you have to be in a very small. People talk all the time about how the arts are full of, of rich kids. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, it's a problem insofar as there's no access for people of other backgrounds. But also the fact that they're rich allows them to do it for its own sake. If they weren't rich, then they would have an, an entirely different approach mm -hmm. to it. So I think he has a point that if you are doing it for money, that is distorting. But also, if you are doing it and you don't have money, you're in some danger of having it distorted in any case. This is very true. I think the thing is that there is, there is like a multiplicity there as well, because often there are people who don't have that much money and are very in very precarious positions. And... Uh, through whatever kind of life experience have uh, made a commitment to truth or whatever. But yes, it's very difficult. And often people who are very, very wealthy, yes, some people are interested in pursuing truth, but some people are interested in status, you know, because that's inculcated within them or because that is a value that, you know, they have or that's where they're pressurized to go or there's some kind of shame if you don't have a lot of money. So there's, yeah. there's various yeah, dimensions. Wealth is no guarantee of it. Wealth yeah. unlocks the possibility that you might have enough time to be able to develop something, mm -hmm. but it's no guarantee that those will, in fact, be your priorities. You know, the, the possibility of developing uh, weird character traits is, to a large degree, enabled by wealth. Mm -hmm. but it's no guarantee of any particular set of traits. But it is true. You know, it's very, very difficult if you are doing a full-time job to, you might, you might have a lot of creative ideas, but actually having the time to enact those practically. Well, and, and also the reps, the, you know, doing things many times, being able to try things many different ways, being able to experiment, all of it requires an enormous amount of time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that our society encourages us to do is to not take seriously the scarcity of time. Mm -hmm. There's all of this, oh, you can do both crap that people say all the time in reference to all kinds of issues, both in terms of, of lifestyle, how to live questions and political questions. But the fact is there's a scarcity of time, a scarcity of space. And to have one thing happen is to have something else not. You know, it's, it's part of why I think that this is, this is maybe a little bit of a provocative take, but I think it is very difficult to be an extremely girly girl who spends a lot of time on, say, uh, makeup and clothing and do other things because it eats so much time in the day. And that time could have gone into earning reps, doing other kinds of things. Now, that's not to say that there's anything inherently wrong with having that as a hobby. But if you're really, really into that, to the exclusion of everything else, if you turn being a girly girl into a fandom, you know, mm -hmm. you're part of a makeup fandom. You know, at that point, you don't have time to develop other skills and traits. And I think the same goes for, for people who take any of their hobbies so seriously to the point where it dominates all of their time. If you do that, then you just become the hobby. And, and at that point, the hobby starts to look very empty because if it's not a small thing, if a hobby is treated as a big thing, it then stops working. 
Anyway, we've hit the hour. So we're going to wrap up for today uh, and go do the B-side. So thank you guys so much for listening. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.